We want this thing to be raw. Tell it like it is on the street. Yeah, lots of pimps and hoes and cussing. And kung fu and karate. Brothers love all that kung fu and karate. Do you know karate? No, but I'm a fast learner. I can learn how to chop me a mother. How's that? I see no reason to do it again. Well, this is episode 422 of the Billy Corgan fan cast. Uh, we are here with a day in the life of a life in the day of... Uh, Brett became Billy Corgan, uh, but I think he got the process reversed. Uh, yeah. Because the the world is a vampire, but, uh, you know, it, eventually it drained him too much and he just couldn't take yeah. it. So. I, had a, uh, I had a Billy Corgan-ectomy, uh, so... Okay. Yeah. Is that... That is a now reversible process, right? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Okay, Th- a this circumcision. <laughs> wow, <laughs> uh, th- this bit Ooh. isn't good, and I don't know why I insist on starting with it every time. But uh, this I is don't even get it. I'm not uh, <laughs> like I don't know who Billy Corgan is at all, and you say it every time you host, and I've never understood. Hold, hold on, do you genuinely not know who Billy Corgan is? I have no idea who that is. He is I, the front man of Smashing Pumpkins, uh, and he has a super nasally voice that he's known for. And also, a lot of people who know him personally in the industry do not like him. Uh-huh. I've listened to Smashing Pumpkins maybe once. That's fair. So I don't. Yeah, I, like you make every time you make that joke, I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I made it uh, to begin with was there was one time that we were like getting ready, and like I think like Blake was grabbing oh. a drink or something. And uh, Brett was playing Bullet with Butterfly Wings on his guitar, and I just I had to—I oh, I had to acknowledge actually. it in some way. Yeah. Okay, I but, got you. That was the time I, I mean, was doodling while I was waiting for you guys. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, this show is actually called Midweek Matinee, and uh, every week we uh, pick a movie and we watch it, and we talk a lot of shit about it on Discord, and then we—holy uh, shit—we watched the movie. Uh, allegedly. I mean, oh. we'll find out over the course of the next hour or so. I, I watched the DVD two blurb, movies, you know? actually, for the wow. record. Daddy Figs <laughs> over here did extra credit work for this Tell episode. About it. I watched... Dad, extra credit does not matter at, at the midweek matinee university. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'll say I, we watched Dolomite Is My Name on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And because we watched Dolomite Is My Name and I, lo- I you know, had great feelings about it as i'll spoil that now i watched <laughs> dolomite or yeah i watched dolomite immediately afterwards and it was also really good so is uh, because i uh, clearly just watched dolomite is my name yeah. right before we started recording is dolomite on netflix on amazon prime ah what, what a weird thing to happen it's like yeah. you can't even go immediately leave that and watch the thing that inspired it right you would yeah. think you could that would actually cool. yeah I actually went only looked because I was like, ah, maybe if this was five bucks, I would buy it. And then like all seven or eight of his movies are on there for free, and I was like, oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna watch them all? <laughs> no, it wasn't that good. <laughs> it, it's definitely a very particular tone, but uh, yeah, Chris, did you uh, want to give any additional thoughts on this movie? Um, Dolomite is my name. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, no, it was. I really liked it. Um, I had a lot of fun. Um, I probably should admit this because it's probably the worst way to watch movies. But like, I can always tell because normally I'll sit down and I'll be like fucking around on my Vita or on my phone, and if I like the movie, I put it down. 
mm. you know and that's kind of where i get the where i judge it um and this movie like it took all of five minutes before my veto was on the other side of the room charging my phone was on the other side of the room charging and i was just watching the movie nice so yeah i think that's that cool. says a lot for me anyway about how the movie was yeah uh brett what about you uh, very similar tale. I've noticed that unless the movie is just really, really out there, and even with me liking it, I feel the need to put a lot of notes down. If it's a movie that's a little more straightforward but still is a very good movie, I've noticed I will tend to just put my phone down and not even really take notes in real time mm. uh, are very, very minimal. So the, the movie did the same for me. And about the same, you know, I went into it like, well, it looks funny and it looks good. I was really surprised to me that it kind of hit a lot of marks i was like you know not only is it funny uh it's also got a lot of heart and character behind it it's got some serious moments but it's also knows to never take itself overly serious Mm -hmm. but it's still trying to feed you this backstory like i love and i haven't watched it yet though i really want to disaster artists i love Mm -hmm. the idea of taking a work of art from an interesting person and not not only referencing the work of art that inspired you to want to do this but also trying to give the story around the creation of it mm-hmm. i love that basic idea and it gives it's really compelling for some reason like you know this whole time i'm just like of course having not known the story the whole time i'm like you could do it rudy you got this man this movie's <laughs> gonna kill and then yeah. every every step of the way when he kind of runs into a barrier you're like oh no is this gonna be it and you're like no nah, fuck that rudy's gonna <laughs> smash it down and then it's just, I, I, it's weird that it's that compelling but i had a blast watching this movie and just like chris within the first five minutes honestly my my eyes hit the screen and they never left uh when they were first having the conversation between uh dolomites uh you know rudy's character uh and snoop dog the disc jockey and that was that conversation alone was enough to kind of just grab my attention and not let go Mm -hmm. yeah i mean they definitely uh came out swinging with the snoop cameo (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess I kind of forgot to intro you guys. I introed the show, but uh, this isn't an automated show yet. Uh, we have Chris Figs over there uh, doing Apex plays and generally uh, giving a lot of our spiciest takes, which then get dragged out over Twitter. Um, <laughs> and uh, Brett, who gives our most uh, rational adult perspective and also is most uh, seemingly most versed in uh, assembling furniture. Sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Begrudgingly. Uh, I am hosting this week. I'm Joshua, and I bring almost nothing of value, but for some reason they keep me around anyway. So let's let's get into it. Um, That was Ah, self-deprecation. My favorite pastime. (laughs) The only kind of joke I know. Um, (laughs) So yeah, uh, we kind of talked about like an... Hold on, can I interrupt you for a second? Because I fucked up last week, and I forgot to tell people that you weren't here. Uh. until the very end of the episode where i was like because i i said it in the episode i'm like i don't like hosting i was nervous i just wanted it to start mm. uh blake's not here <laughs> <laughs> you might have um, been going there but I, I, yes. I i thought you were transitioning in a little bit so i was like i'm gonna say it because we didn't do it for josh and i felt bad no yeah <laughs> so if you've wondered why you've not heard anything about red dead redemption 2 in this episode yet yeah it's because well, blake is gone it's bad. <laughs> or the Belco experiment, but it's bad. 
um, so yeah, uh, initial thoughts from me. I, I loved the movie. Uh, this is, there were moments where I was like, I was kind of second guessing myself. I was having so much fun with the movie that I was like, wait a minute, is this one of those like daytime TV feel good movies? Am I going to realize this, that this like actually wasn't that great. And I was just so like hyped on like, you know, the main character's journey, but no, this movie's fucking awesome. Like Eddie Murphy fucking kills in it. The whole cast is great. I legitimately didn't realize I was watching Wesley Snipes for like the first 12 scenes he was in because he was so that character that I was just like oh, holy, holy shit I didn't shit. even realize that was fucking <laughs> <laughs> but now that you said the whole time I was like who is that yeah <laughs> I, he... mean, I know the face but it never clicked with me <laughs> Right, like he's iconic. Like he's been in so many huge things, but like he just—I've never seen him play this kind of character. So I was just like, "Who is this gentleman? He seems very familiar." Uh, <laughs> it's Blade. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, there—I can't think of an aspect of this film I didn't love. Like the cast was incredible. Uh, the soundtrack I really loved. There were parts that were kind of forgettable, yeah. but. I think it did a really great job of implementing the the funk motifs and I don't know, man. I mean, I, I don't even know how to like, okay, here's where I want to take this because overall the, the theme here is perseverance and overcoming and it's kind of a movie about a movie. So it's a little bit meta, but was there ever a point? First, let me ask, did you guys all know that this was based on an existing movie? No. I didn't originally but chris uh did mention the other day in the discord and i saw it that it apparently was based off of a real thing so mm-hmm. sadly i did not get the chance to just uh you know <laughs> spoilers for real life <laughs> <laughs> uh chris did did you know about dolomite before watching this um no i didn't i actually the only reason i found out was because i was uh I was like, I was googling the movie, like to read the Wikipedia page a little bit, and I was mm. like, "Oh shit, this is a person." <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, "Okay." So then I saw that Dolomite was a real movie, and I'm like, "I have to watch it now." So <laughs> it's a happy coincidence. Yeah, I feel like I saw a lot of like marketing push for this, but I, I don't recall it ever being made clear that it was like based on real events and there was an mm. original movie and it was based on a person. Like I just. I, I only ever saw it as like cool Eddie Murphy's back, so that well, was. It, it kind of <laughs> feels like in that way that it was a movie made by Eddie Murphy for people Eddie Murphy's age, you know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so that they because they would understand. Like, oh, this is like they 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 probably you know people around that age like probably saw that movie in theaters, you know, and uh, mm. whereas I didn't even know Dolomite was a fucking thing. Yeah. Well, and you have to think about it from it being a black centric movie. You do have the setup to where, and I like how the movie kind of references that a lot. It's like mm-hmm. uh, I never heard that terminology, but a black exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what the movie called it? Um, yeah. That's the so yeah, genre. it would it would definitely make sense if you look at the movie and what they're talking about. It's kind of like oh, this was very geared towards a specific group of people. Uh, in that time period so it really does kind of tie into like you know these group of people probably really did you know watch this stuff growing up coming up for sure yeah I I think a thing that it made super clear to me and like admittedly I was like not familiar with a lot of the cultural references because I didn't grow up with them but it, it made it so apparent to me like that craving to see things that uh you know 
I, I think anytime you've got like a, a feeling of like an in crowd and you're in on something that's really cool and the rest of the world doesn't know about it, it feels like your thing and it's special. Um, and it, it, it was really cool seeing the movie's portrayal on, you know, what I, I think obviously plays out in reality a lot of there being something that's special to a group of people and beloved and really well known by these people. And it kind of just doesn't like ever seem to be like made aware of to the rest of the world. So that was like, it was really interesting to see that kind of, uh, this movie's angle on like, cause in a way what he does kind of is like appropriation, but it's not like in the hostile way. It's like with the blessing of all these people who love this thing, like, yeah, like break this out to a bigger audience. Like, you know, share it with more people kind of thing. That was kind of my question throughout the movie was like, what did he do for that homeless man <laughs> later? Because he, he I, pays him at the beginning, <laughs> but Dolomite is a multi-millionaire by the end of this movie. Right. Maybe not by the end of this movie, but like immediately following the end of this movie, he's a multi-millionaire. Hey, so like, does he go fair, back to fair trade? Is it <laughs> he, though? He could. And it would be the great thing. The reason I say that is, okay, a perfect example of this within gaming, and there's probably a good movie example as well, is The Witcher. The Witcher sure. 3 was a huge success. And despite the fact that the books did have a cult following, they were never quite as successful as the games. Right. And even the first couple of games were not that, or the first game really wasn't successful at all. The second one was pretty successful. And the third one, of course, as we all know, spawned tons and tons of things. But... It- the author for the books, whenever he decided to sell them, sold the rights wholesale mm-hmm. because he didn't think anything would ever come from them and wasn't really worried about it. So he was looking for a one-time larger amount instead of a smaller amount up front, but with royalties. Sure. So what I mean by that is when you have a situation where you are the person who's taking on the financial risk that comes along with this, what he did was paid somebody up front to kind of get the inspiration for everything he wanted to do moving forward took it sculpted it into something that was more usable and then took the risk on putting it on tape and putting on vinyl and pressing those vinyls and selling them so i mean i get what you're saying and of course in a great world i kept thinking that too like it'd be really cool if he went back and was like hey you know that i've turned this in i was also a little surprised that like since we never saw his character do that i was like wouldn't it be kind of interesting if that character came back around the 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 homeless dude i kept expecting him to yeah, me too. <laughs> I I thought there was that one time where he was signing uh, records or whatever, and it was mm. for a guy who looked like Richie. And I'm like, oh, he's about to get called out. It was just no. But I do have to take um, umbrage with your example of Witcher of the Witcher series because the author sued CD Projekt Red for more money and won, and he's getting paid royalties now. Did he win? Yes. Damn. I did not know that. I don't think he should have because what I he don't did either. Was exactly but that's what Marvel did when they sold. That's another example, which Marvel was a little different. But when Marvel was going to go bankrupt and they ended up selling the Spider-Man property off to Sony and the yep. X-Men property off to Fox or the mutant properties rather off yep. to Fox, um, they did so wholesale. Yeah, and I, even though Marvel eventually came back later to become the monster that we know them as today they still do not have the rights to Spider-Man because they made a hasty decision up front. Right. And Sony said, hey, we're taking the, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to actually make a movie out of this. We're taking the biggest financial risk. We would not, you know, we want to own this outright. This is valuable if it can be handled correctly. Yeah. And clearly, Sony made a lot of money off of it. I don't disagree with you, for the record. So maybe it, that's a better example. Maybe Spider-Man. It, that is, is the better example. example. It's it, that's a, The Witcher thing is like a specific, like, 
Poland law is really weird, so he could do that. I'm I'm of the mind if you sell your shit, you don't get it back <laughs> unless you pay for it, you know, but but to go back to kind of what I was saying is the one difference between all of the examples we've said is that Marvel willingly sold their property. Uh, the guy who wrote which I wish I could remember his name, he willingly sold his property. I think Dolomite just kind of, at least the impression I got from the movie is Dolomite just went there, recorded what they were saying and took their jokes. He didn't like tell them, okay, I want to I want to be a famous act, a comedian and I'm going to use your jokes. He just recorded all of it and took it. Yeah, it so was a knowing transaction. Difference. Yeah. Now, here's the thing about that that still gets weird though. Mm. And this comes down to copyright law and just in general and something that we see examples of all the time, right? When you think about stories that were passed down through word of mouth for a long time Mm -hmm. uh, then you see people take that same basic story same outline maybe they'll make a small change on it maybe they won't but they'll use it to be able to make money off of what do you do in those situations because like you know we were talking i think last week about how there are non-disney versions of a lot of movies and stories that we consider to be part of disney like Mm. there are plenty of non-disney tellings of uh, the little mermaid story because the story itself is not worth anything. The story itself does not have an, an a value as an IP because it's old. Now, if you go back before that, because you know it's before the time of copywriting. If you go back before that, told stories. I wonder how that worked, and that's not. A, I, I don't genuinely know. I wonder how that worked. Well, it's like, it's know. what I would imagine the same situation where like Cthulhu is because like I'm ninety percent sure. Like in the book I'm writing, if I wanted to put Cthulhu in it, I could. As Cthulhu, um, you know, it's not like I'd have to probably. be like, "Oh, the giant sea squid." Did you, you know? Did you talk to the the H.P. Lovecraft? <laughs> <laughs> I checked. <laughs> I checked with his estate. They don't mind yeah. that an yeah. underwater sea creature lives inside of the earth. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely a thing that you guys are right to point out that the legal aspect of IP itself is already. It seems like it's not always set in stone. There are sometimes cases that feel more open to interpretation based on however things play out and are very specific. Uh, but that that's, Brett, I'm glad you mentioned the folklore aspect because I feel like that's essentially what Dolomite is doing. Well, uh, essentially what the character of Dolomite is anyway, as far as like he's, it, it feels like there's a little bit of like, there's a little bit of like a, he's doing it knowingly and they kind of know that he's borrowing these elements of folklore and it's like, I feel like that was at least what made the response so impactful when he first like went up and did the act as Dolomite was like people responding to it. It wasn't because he was necessarily doing something fresh. It was, he was doing something familiar that was aware of its roots and kind of paying homage to them in that way. And yeah, I I think that's Mm -hmm. a, a thing that gets tricky with folklore, with ideas that are considered public domain and than ideas that aren't where it's like you know uh, so many things in star wars are built on tropes and that Mm -hmm. particular character is copyrighted but that character is like like ben kenobi is just a stereotypical like you've got the old you know wise dude in the story and luke is just like the impatient adventurer guy that the story censor like centers around like there's nothing super original if you break them down into archetypes but it's kind of what you do with them that makes it special and really, yeah, if you look at Luke Skywalker, he's just the, the he's the hero story, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like how uh, I think it was Spielberg who said you can only tell seven stories. 
I don't think this is a fundamental issue with the movie. We're kind of going on a very deep dive into something that's not really that big of a deal. No, it's not. It's just I think it is interesting. Which though, I, I don't. No, I don't mean to stop the conversation because I'm just. What I want to point out is like this is the same thing where like Brett you have the first 25 pages of my book so if you took that and wrote an entire book using that there's nothing I could say to you outside of the fact that the words I write are copyrighted apparently I don't know if that's actually true not copyrighted unless you actually go through the process of copywriting them though there There are some arguments that can be made about whether or not you have proof that you had them written first and Mm -hmm. you could prove that you sent them to me yeah it's it's really weird i promise you it's really weird yeah no i'm just making the point that like if i did that if you did that i could be pissed at you but i have no real recourse because of that because i gave you you know unfinished works that's on me so that's basically what these guys did so that's why like when i say we're raising an issue or something that's not that big a deal it's that reason it's these guys personal decision to give away their comedy basically yeah i I, my last thing on it then we can kind of move on is i i do think the fact that and, and of course this is just me pulling what i think would happen from this if you came to me and gave me money for stories and were recording them there's no way in hell I wouldn't think that there was a chance that you were going to do something with them that may benefit you more than me. But in the moment, you're paying me and I'm getting something out of it and I'm pretty desperate. So, you know, maybe sure. it, maybe it's a power dynamic problem there. <laughs> well, I, I think but, that's very clearly, I think there is a bit of a power dynamic with uh, Rudy being, I, I think having just more faculties to be aware of what was happening in that situation and approaching the dude kind of at a bad time and just sort of like right on the spot being like, Hey, I'll give you a fuckload of like money and booze. If you just like go off, like that mm-hmm. he's kind of, he's not giving them a chance to think it through. He's, he's trying to incentivize them to just be like, Oh fuck. Yeah, fine. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. And um, yet we still view Rudy as the hero. And the reason why <laughs> I think, uh, I'm obviously no authority on this, but the the reason to me that felt like as played out by the movie uh, was that it was done not just in an opportunistic bullshit kind of way. Like, yeah, he was trying to make his career, but he was lovingly representing his community. Like a lot of this felt like jokes that like dads tell. And it's like a lot of dads tell the same jokes and you're not trying to get to the bottom of like who wrote that joke. It's kind of just like, well, these are like, these are jokes that a lot of people have heard their black dads say, or like they (laughs) themselves say. And it's just kind of like, yeah, it's kind of funny that this dude's like going up on stage and like representing, like I've heard someone I know say shit like that. So that's funny. Um, Well, you know, the thing is like, I was going to say when I was talking about it, where I honestly like I don't think any of the jokes were funny. I think Dolomite was funny. If does that mm-hmm. make sense? Like no, I when I'm watching this I'm like ha ha the elephant has a dick. You know that well that wasn't funny. But the way Dolomite was delivering it was funny. That's I think the big thing where like yeah. If it, it's uh, in the, the performance itself. Exactly. If mm-hmm. Toothless Man, I don't remember his name. I think it was Rudy. No, that's the main character's name. Roddy, <laughs> something, something like, like Richie. That. You're right, it's Richie. Um, if he went up there and he told the jokes the same way he did, it wouldn't have been funny. You know? 
Mm. I mean, it, the movie kind of hints that he at least had a little bit of it, and that's clearly why Rudy thought it was enough, to, like it was worthy of trying to look at and like, hey, could I take that, polish it up, and make it into an experience that would make people want to see that and find it funny? And you're right, a lot of what's in, like you know, even the the clothing, the dressing up, making it like you know, saying it with the attitude of like a, a pimp, you know, and he kind of pokes fun at things. Like this is not who I really am; it's a fake character. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that aspect because of the, because everything he does to kind of build it up is like he says it over and over again. Like, I'm going to find a way to say it where it's not just a sentence, which could sometimes be mildly funny. Like, you know, even like the one where he's like, and when I find your grandma, I'm going to have another fine piece or whatever. It's like, well, that's <laughs> that's that was just naturally funny anyway. Yeah. But if you deliver it in a, in a way that can kind of elevate it, then it's even more funny and more memorable. And one of the things I really loved about the initial, uh, you know, uh, unraveling and, you know, the first time he goes out and does uh, the Dolomite character is the, like, the attention, like, he, he was so into it. He's like, you know, you're, I'm trying to build something into this. Like, you know, don't hit me with the little of the drums. You know, give me something with a little soul. And I love that the first show kind of had this feeling of, like, slam poetry that was comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was cool. It's like, it, and then they kind of keep going with that, you know. When whenever he ends up getting uh, uh, Queen Bee in, and they do their little, they're kind of making fun of duets and doing comedy music. It's like there's a there's an entire thing built around it, which ties into uh, the character to begin with. You know, we see Rudy as like a, a failed musician and a failed dancer and a failed comedian, but we're mm-hmm. seeing him with Dolomite bring all this together in a way that somehow is successful, leaning on all the things he had previously not quite struck the goal he wished he would have at. And that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. A thing that stood out to me that honestly didn't click until I watched the original Dolomite movie was the character of Dolomite just feels like a superhero. He feels like <laughs> elements of Batman and elements of James Bond. And what, one of the other things that made this idea really resonate for me was the end sequence of the movie where he's about to go into that packed screening and he decides to stay and entertain the people more. And like that mm-hmm. kid like idolizes him. And mm-hmm. I, I, that's the whole point is like him creating a character who's kind of an icon who can be this like super like super powered badass and there's a there's a really cool moment, honestly, in the original Dolomite movie that uh, I maybe you guys can think of an example from what we watched that parallels this. But uh, there's this dude who's like out of his mind on crack and approaches him, and there's like y- you see this aspect of the Dolomite character where some of the person inside kind of breaks through, and you see like he's trying to help this guy, and there's like a I feel like it ties all of the different aspects of Dolomite together. We're like, yeah, it is an entertainment figure, but he's trying to provide for his community in some way. He's trying to be inspiring and he's also trying to look out for, uh, you know, like I think we see over the course of this movie, at least he does a lot to unite all these different people who feel burned out and feel not seen and feel like they haven't had a chance to succeed in some way. Um, I, I think both in reality and in the movie, there's a lot of, there's a lot that speaks to that, desire to be like a, a superhero of sorts um, i think i think that we bring up the that scene of him at the theater and that was the scene that i think put the movie over the edge for me of just really liking the character and you know oh, i yeah. think that has to do with definitely has a lot to do with Ed, eddie murphy's charisma but that mm. whole scene was just so good where i'm mm-hmm. like okay i really like this dude it wasn't like ah oh, you know because like 
disaster artist that you brought up a little earlier it's 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 about that i can't even fuck i can't even remember the guy's name so i don't know why i'm bringing it up but it's about him but he's not as charismatic as this guy is hmm? yeah you sure. know and that was the thing you know, he's kind Eddie, of like anti-charismatic almost. <laughs> yeah <laughs> where like eddie murphy adds the the extra Tommy bit Wiseau, of charisma yes tommy Wiseau. i should have known that um Okay, hold on. I should take that back because I think that when the movie The Room came out, he didn't. But I think that in a weird way, Tommy Wiseau has found charisma through the love of The Room as a bad movie, as crazy as that is. I think his Joker performance that he does, which is just <laughs> like, it's so charismatic and it's so funny and goofy and it's self like, it, it, he, he knows that it's poking fun at himself. It's just, it's so good. Yeah, that yeah. we could go off on a tangent because <laughs> bad movies are my favorite kinds of movies, <laughs> and I don't understand why there's not a legitimate industry of it. Like, I'll, like it'll be a very small tangent, but there's this show that you can only watch on YouTube. I believe it's called uh, Dark Place, and mm-hmm. it is if you've ever seen the IT Crowd, which is an incredible British show. It's those guys making a purposely bad TV show. And it's so fucking good <laughs> because those guys are genuinely hilarious, and they're purposely trying to make it bad. Like, I do think that those do exist, though. I mean, I have to watch the original Dolomite to know for sure. But at least the feeling I get from this movie is that, like, he he knows that this is kind of like it's not that it's a great movie. It's kind of that it's bad in all the right ways to where it's enjoyable to watch. Cause like, you know, mm-hmm. whenever you see Rudy's character on the first opening night, when everybody's laughing and the theater owner's like, Hey, I thought this was supposed to be more like a shaft thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, was it supposed to be funny? And you can see Adam Murphy like, yeah, of course it's supposed to be funny. And like, you see him already leaning into that whenever they're yeah, making right. the movie. So, I mean, I would, I would argue I'd of course need to watch them all, but I would imagine that all of the Dolomite movies exist in that purposely bad kind of like yeah. i mean some of it you could technically say is parody but i think parody is the uh, purposely bad to get a joke you know it's like movies mm-hmm. like kung pao uh and, and stuff like that you know uh samurai cop uh velocipastor is also really good <laughs> yeah uh, well, countdown that. that's why i picked it velocipastor has one of my favorite scenes in any sharknado Sharknado also, The Meg, that's a pretty good one. Um, But no, Velocipastor has my favorite scene in a bad movie where there's (laughs) there's supposed to be a car explosion and it just says, fire VFX. (laughs) (laughs) It is so funny. But like, that's a specific type of movie that I don't think people nail anymore. And I I think you're right, Dolomite is that. But like, that doesn't happen now. We're so interested in like having good movies you know mm. so i like we, i was playing D today before we recorded and we were having this conversation about how there should be a dvd and d show and i you know i think i think if you did a D show purposely bad where like 
in the middle of the TV show, there's a fucking break for pizza, and like <laughs> you know, like and that like kind all of the stuff. characters drop and everything. Yeah, like you see, and like, like the go back to their normal clothes. <laughs> right, it's just a bunch of dudes just having a conversation in the background while like the characters we're following are just standing around not doing anything. You know, that yeah. kind of thing would be actually be really funny. See, but, I, I think what happened there is that a lot of that moved to animation and cartoons and doesn't exist as much inside the live action sphere as it once did. Right, and the reason I say that is like, of course, this is an older example but one of my favorite episodes ever of chowder is an episode where midway through they're talking about something in relation to the show and they're like oh no we're out of budget and they literally (laughs) go and they cut to the real voice actors going through and doing a car wash so they can earn enough money to finish the animation (laughs) of the episode it's fucking hilarious yeah it's one of my absolute and and it speaks exactly to what you're talking about it's just goofy rawness that's it, t- it really is bad like their performances are not good or convincing or anything but it's so hilarious from the basic idea of what they're trying to do that you don't even care because it honestly makes the whole scene you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah i definitely i'm really really excited to watch dolomite that was one of my main notes that i took is like after watching this movie it makes me want to watch the actual dolomite because yeah, yeah. or even even then my initial thing I I would love, and I doubt that they would, but I would absolutely love if they actually, in the making of this movie, also shot an entire version of their take on Dolomite, (laughs) and you got to watch Eddie Murphy's Dolomite fully play out the entire movie. That would be hilarious. I love stuff like that, like when The Office did Threat Level Midnight and then actually release it as a a movie. Uh, That's a great idea. Uh, but if nothing else, a good stand-in is being able to watch the actual original Dolomite because mm-hmm. this movie feels like from the scenes that they show at the end of the actual Dolomite movies, they nail the tone of mm-hmm. what yeah. the original's going for, and I, it makes me really excited to watch that. Well, the, I think the original, like kind of circling back, I guess, <laughs> hijacked the show a little bit, but um, I think the original Dolomite, like it's not a, it's not a bad movie in the same way the Room is. This is like sure, sure. This is like because uh, the room you laugh at how bad it is and because it was meant to be serious. Yes, exactly. And that's a hard thing because you can't nail it. You can't nail that. You can't nail movies that were that were intended to be good but were just so bad because the people didn't have the skill or the know-how right. or whatever it is, the money to pay real actors, or the you know the fact that like Tommy Wiseau was so crazy that he believed he was a good actor <laughs> in that situation. You know, you know if that's the thing, if Dolomite. Like I'm sitting here now that we're talking about, it, I'm imagining like a Russo's brother Dolomite movie, and that shit's like a ten out of ten. Because like the thing <laughs> is, and you can tell, you can tell watching the movie, and you can tell obviously through the edit, the the movie that we actually watched for the show, um, that the director didn't give a fuck. <laughs> so like, if the director just cared and they had more money for editing, I think the movie would be significantly better. You know, and you know, yeah. someone to. Cut I mean, the script and that kind of stuff. But. Yeah, sure. But the movie also is clearly meant to be over the top. It's meant to have kung fu, despite the fact that they knew going into it that they weren't going to have somebody who actually knew kung well, fu. Yeah. It's almost like it's part of it. It's like, well, we're going to have kung fu because kung fu is what, uh, you know, as Eddie Murphy keeps saying, it's like, that's what the brothers like. It's like, it's tying back in there. Like, you look at what your core audience is and you see what they like, but you can also choose to do that in a funny way. Yeah. When they approach the sex scene and they're like, well, I don't want, you know, I don't know how to be sexy. And it's like, well, you know, 
why don't we make it funny we've already made everything else funny what what's the hurt of just yeah. making this also funny and i think the, that was the one scene where wesley snipes character didn't come off like just human garbage where he, <laughs> he was just like i don't know what the fuck it was but it was funny as fuck I'm like hell yeah it was <laughs> yeah um a, a thing that really came across to me across uh dolomite is my name and the original dolomite was this feeling of like we haven't gotten to see enough like we've seen so many movies where like it's some white dude who's this incredible like action hero badass and obviously you know example given like movies like shaft exist but mm-hmm. um i i think there's something that the original dolomite movie does that this movie really captures where it's just kind of clowning on a lot of those uh ideas and pretenses like especially like when they show up and they're meeting the movie label dudes and they're all like they are dressed the fuck up and like you know these guys are like they they look pretty square they look pretty sleazy and like <laughs> they're they're judging them so much and like underestimating them so much but like it, it's cool that like in this no you're not better than us we're better than you kind of way mm-hmm. um you know they stand their ground and i feel like that's a big part of the whole flair of Dolomite is just like, no, we're going to do what we think is cool. Not what you think is cool. We're not going to try to like live up to your standard. Cause like, obviously we don't have the money. So we just look like a pale imitation. We're going to do what we do and make it fucking awesome. And like, that's something that I think <laughs> rescues it from that bad movie territory is like, yeah, a lot yeah. of it is maybe like it's rough as far as movie making chops goes, but like, it's so it's coming from such an honest place that it just fucking rocks anyway. Right. Yeah, it's like when you see people who are really p- passionate about something doing something on a home level, but mm. it just ends up fucking being awesome anyway. I mean, I've seen it plenty of times where you see somebody with less means still do something that somehow, even if technically speaking, it doesn't look or feel like it's as high product or as high, you know, um, what would you even say, high skilled as some of the other things and as professional, somehow mm. it gives you more of an actual emotional response. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, before we move off of it, I think it's hilarious. Yeah. The scene when they're going to Dimension Films that you're talking about and they come out all super dressed up, it just immediately made me think of the player haters from Chappelle's show, and I could not <laughs> stop laughing. Oh, man, I haven't seen that. I, I got to watch more Chappelle show in general. Real quick, <laughs> this annoyed me so much. Brett, I'm curious if uh, you cared at all. Uh, they auto-tuned the ever-loving fuck out of Craig Robinson, and I know he is a fantastic singer. I wish they hadn't I, done uh, that. <laughs> immediately. Because my, I'll, I'll kind of give you my thought process on that. Beginning of the movie, I saw the credits that said Craig Robinson. I was like, okay, interesting. Also, I like that stylistically, this movie brought back pre-credits mm, because yeah. it's set in the time period where, pre, like, where credits during the intro was a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. Uh, but I saw Craig Robinson. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I was like, I wonder what he's going to be in it. And then when you see him come up on stage, I was like, oh, yeah, he is a fantastic singer. And I was like, it's interesting how often he ends up playing that. And I don't know if either of you have ever seen it, but he plays <laughs> in a movie by the whitest kids you know guys called Miss March, which is absolutely hilarious and stupid. But he <laughs> plays a rapper named Horsedick.mpeg. I have seen it then because <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> And his breakout song is Suck My Dick While I Fuck That Ass. <laughs> uh, and then he has one, I'm a fuck a white bitch, which is also <laughs> fucking great. Um, 
Anyway, so my brain was thinking about that dumb shit. Then he comes on and he starts singing. I was like, oh, yeah, he is a good singer. And then immediately I heard a little artifacts from auto-tune. I was like, well, now why was that necessary? Oh, he's in uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he, oh. his episodes are the best episodes of that show. I really need to watch that. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is the best television show on TV right now. But... um no, his episode. He, he's always singing, and he's just so entertaining. To where the point where, like, I saw him come up, and I was like, I fuck with this because I feel like he was. He's not really in many movies, you know. He's mm. kind of like a, you know, not to be insensitive, but he kind of plays the black friend in a lot of movies. Yep. You know, that's how I've always felt about like his characters, and I I was really glad that he kind of broke out into something more than that. Because even, yeah. uh, even in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like I say, he's one of my favorite characters. But in a lot of ways, you could just boil it down to one of the few, you know. Hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, he, he definitely gets underutilized in a lot of his roles. Like, oh, dude, quick side note. Uh, I mm. played a show at the Mint in L.A. And I was, like, hanging out, like, before the set. And I noticed this flyer on the wall that was for Craig Robinson's band. It was, like, the following weekend. And I, I fucking never went. I it's one of my greatest regrets in life because Craig Robinson playing like a a one hundred cap room would have been fucking dope as fuck to see. Dude, you definitely should have went to that. Uh, what I always love about his roles is that in almost every one of his roles, they they find a way to put into the fact that he is a musician and like a very talented. Like I really love that in the office they let they let everybody lean into like their real thing. So of mm-hmm. course the character you know Ed Helm is a real musician and does that stuff. And often he gets to do the same thing where his characters get to have a musical element and they work it into the story. And so it's great seeing him in that role. And I wonder if he actively pursued it or if he kind of just saw it and went toward it. I wonder how much of of that character he actually shaped versus how much was written maybe with him in mind and if it even was you know that's a that kind of stuff's always really interesting to me to see how the back end of a movie uh, goes it's like when they when people write characters and of course if these characters are based off of real people is the other question um yeah and and how much so so but it it was great seeing him in it he's such a funny actor but he's also so genuine and just he makes any movie that he's in better (laughs) yeah I, i agree um Chris, did you have something to add? Uh, no. Honestly, the only thing I was going to add was about the artists I've seen in small rooms, so it doesn't necessarily need to be said. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I will, because I'm actually very proud of it. I saw Kendrick Lamar um, opening for fucking Steve Aoki right before Good Kid, Bad City came out. And then I saw Schoolboy Q at like a very small, right before his blow-up album came out. Both of those... Nice best shows i've ever been to they rub it in my face you know the chances of me seeing <laughs> uh, any of that in my random corner fucking city in arkansas also mm. shout out they mentioned arkansas a lot in this movie <laughs> but also treat it like absolute shit yeah <laughs> well, i guess to be fair they don't treat arkansas like absolute shit so much as they treat people His from arkansas yeah <laughs> that's kind of i don't know like. which is better <laughs> Well, the crazy thing is, is like my grandfather being from around this area and and coming from here, uh, definitely in the time period, like, you know, where you're seeing, if you think about the age that um, Rudy would have been and thinking about that, uh, it really was a a lot like that. I mean, pretty much no people with a lot of money lived around, uh, not 
necessarily my actual city like Texarkana, but a lot of the smaller places like uh, the Jerry Jones one that they mentioned or whatever that uh, dude's name was, yeah. as well as um, Fort Smith, which is a decent sized one. They were very much sharecrop focused. Mm. So it's a it's a historically accurate movie in that regard too, and there are a lot of people who moved from here to California during the gold rush because of that specific thing, and then after whenever the depression set in, a lot of people moved away as well to try and do something mm. different. Well, yeah, and I think actually, you know, I was we were I was kind of thinking that it didn't relate what we were talking about like small show stuff that we've seen, but I think that's almost brings some uh, an interesting element to the movie because a lot of this was like. Imagine seeing, you know, Rudy opening up for someone else and getting almost booed off stage or, you know, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And I think that intimacy and then seeing someone blows up, and I, you know, it kind of makes you feel a lot more connected to their career, right? Like, Oh, you know, for sure. When even I, on a small <clears throat> setting, even if you don't yeah. even like, because of course I have less opportunities to legitimately see people open. Mm-hmm. I have on occasion been lucky yeah. enough to see people that I ended up loving and really did find a growing thing. But there's always that thing about finding an underdog uh, and liking them and then them eventually growing up and like growing into their thing and then you being like holy shit i can't believe i saw them yeah in these formative Dude, like, years yeah when i when i saw kendrick lamar right mm-hmm. like he came out and he was doing like pussy he was doing stuff from section 80 so he was doing like pussy and patron and like in high power and it was like halfway through the show and i was like oh shit that's actually kendrick lamar <laughs> you know and i didn't even realize and and then now like you see him performing one of my favorite grammy performances ever right like his that radioactive one is so good Mm. um and like that just it feels really cool and like i can't i don't feel that's the same way about schoolboy q because i knew him before going in there so it was totally different but Mm. that venue was so small that he bumped into me when we were walking out (laughs) you know and that that kind of stuff is really sick like now you would never see him play at a place like that (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I think one of the things that this movie actually touches into that I thought was really cool, and I love the line of the movie anyway, uh, but I like the idea that this movie is kind of like um, talks about the fact that this is like a very small group of dedicated people who really like his work, yeah. and they kind of talk about it in like, a, hey, you know, clearly we believed in it enough to, to want to press records because, like, you know, we believed in it that much and it was beneficial to both of us, but it's like, you know, you got to think this is a five-block group of people who are just really into you, uh, what what happens when you take that uh, you know large? And I love that his response is in in terms of trying to get money from the uh, from the studio that he did his uh, vinyls or his records through. Mm. I love the idea that he was like, uh, yeah, it's only five blocks, but every city has got that same five blocks. I was like, yeah, yeah. it's exactly right. It's like, yeah, that demographic that you're really reaching out to is in almost every city. Mm-hmm. And you just got to have faith that you can find them there and that if you really believe in yourself and do the work that you can find that. Um, but I also love that because it kind of goes back to that thing of like, even in a day, like, you know, because we have the internet and all that stuff, even though you don't necessarily always have the opportunity to see and act, it is still one of those things where like, and I feel like this movie touches in on that a little bit. The idea that like, Clearly, a lot of those people may have never seen him, but they had heard his record when he was still a relatively small person. And as he's blowing up, you get that thing of like, I kind of was part of that. Like, I got to be 
mm-hmm. in the in his stepping growing stones like i have yeah. that all the time where i find an artist i absolutely love and i just really hope that they blow up because i think that they deserve it and then when yeah. they do there's like there's nothing quite like it I, I may have never seen any of these artists live yeah you know, sometimes and it's just an amazing feeling uh and I think this movie kind of touches into that. I love that idea and how it ties into that kind of the end of the movie. You know, it's like, well, that same five blocks exists everywhere. Mm-hmm. And on the way to the theater, they kind of read the reviews and they're thinking, uh, you know, it's it kind of blows the mood over in the car of like suddenly yeah. everything's downtrodden. And I love that, like, you know, Rudy's response there is like, we've already won. Like, you know, regardless of what happens, we've already won. We had a great time making a movie. We made a movie. No one else would let us. We went and we did the work ourselves mm-hmm. and we're still going and having a good night tonight, regardless of what happens. But I love it when you get there and you see all the people, that's like the first thing that came to my mind is like, that's that same five blocks. That's uh, that's, that's who's showing up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that that uh, that whole angle was so. I mean, inspiring. Like, I mean, especially for me. Like, I I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm a musician. I care a lot about like you know independent artists existing and flourishing, and all the art that people interact with, not just being stuff that's you know produced on multi million dollar budgets and approved by boardrooms of people, but being mm-hmm. genuine expressions of what people go through, and especially speaking to. Uh, you know, viewpoints and struggles that maybe are missing from our overall kind of, you know, from the stories that we get right now or from the music that we get right now. So, I mean, it's always cool as fuck to see and kind of believe for a moment that, yeah, some like grassroots kind of thing like this can still take off. Uh, Obviously, it's, you know, it's a very DIY asset in the late 70s kind of way. But I think we also see, uh, you know, with the proliferation of online tools, how many ways there are for someone ideally to be able to hopefully, you know, stand out in some way and reach their own, uh, version of, you know, the five blocks, whoever, you know, resonates right. with whatever they're doing. Well, that, mm. that's like, you know, it's kind of like the thing I, I think we talked about it on another show where like at this point in 2020, you can get famous for almost anything with a group of people, right? Like, you know, anybody will buy there will there will be someone who buys your nudes on OnlyFans. there will be somebody who watches your tiktoks there will be like somebody somebody is into fat puerto ricans with (laughs) like somebody would pay to see my dick it might be one person but they would pay for it whereas five dollars is five dollars i'm saying listen (laughs) dm me um but no but my my point is that like it's almost more impressive and more inspiring in a lot of ways that he did that in 1970. Yeah. Right. Like, mm-hmm. cause it, in 2020 that he could have just put that movie on YouTube and it probably doesn't go anywhere realistically, you know? Yeah. And, and I was going to speak on that too. It's like, you have the thing now where that was so much more impressive in the seventies when the DIY angle was so much harder and the grind. And I'm not saying there's not a grind now. I'm clearly do a ton of DIY stuff. I'm right. doing DIY music right now. We do DIY podcasts. That's what this is. But, because of that in the best way possible there's also so much more competition oh yeah uh and it it, it's amazing to see someone with that spirit because i feel like 
seeing stuff like that back in the 70s when it wasn't as easy, now that you're in a time period where technology has made things so much easier and the ability to kind of everybody can have a decent enough camera to be able to shoot a movie that, yeah, maybe it doesn't look like something you'd actually see in the theater, but it, it, it works well enough for you to tell the story you want to tell. And as long as you are actually good and you find the right audience, then you can become a success over something that you just really worked hard and had passion for. Uh, and it doesn't mean it's going to be easy because there's so much competition, but it's amazing thing. And, uh, it is wild that something like Dolomite probably, I, I thought about that myself when I kept going through, I was like, what if this were a YouTube video? Like it would either be wildly successful or, or it yeah. would just be a thing that people kind of be like, huh, huh, and then never think about it again. It kind of reminds me of, uh, do you guys remember the viral video, uh, Unforgivable? Hey, uh, just because it's my only claim to fame, uh, that was recorded in Texarkana, Texas, behind an old movie theater in the woods. And Gunnar Stanson, uh, his mom still lives here and works oh, yeah. for the school district here. That's interesting. Funny. But, like, <clears throat> yeah. uh, I kind of just feel like it would be in that same realm where, like, not internet myth but internet myth do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it would be kind of one of those things where like i feel like it's one of those things where like a hundred thousand people saw it on youtube while it was still there and then it got pulled down and re-uploaded by fifty thousand channels so everyone's seen it but it didn't do anything for him you know not that mm-hmm. that's the same thing with unforgivable that's just the type of yeah, video I'm actually that of. guy married a very very popular a uh, tennis player he has a production company uh yeah. though actually the guy who was behind the camera and his partner mm. uh hodge i can't remember his full name maybe caleb hodge or something like that uh i think he died this year i'm not exactly or maybe last year i can't i don't know exactly what happened i don't know if it was uh suicide or what but uh they they do have a production company and he's a comedian and a writer and um it definitely did take in places and yeah. i don't know if it was just our hot topic because it happened in texarkana and though even a lot of people in texarkana did not know that that happened in texarkana <laughs> uh, but our hot topic for years uh had the uh, shirts with catchphrases and stuff on it like hashtag unforgivable or i want a chicken a sandwich <laughs> fries. and you could buy shirts for that shit on it you got brothers <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that video makes me like I love it it's so much yeah. I watch it every now and then just because it's it's hilarious oh, it it's really perfect. is hilarious and I know all the things he's talking about he's like we went down to the silver ball <laughs> <laughs> that's an arcade that still exists even though it's been moved within our mall to the other side and has expanded a lot but <laughs> that's that's what it is and our Chick-fil-A yeah. in our mall is the Chick-fil-A he's talking about so <laughs> I, it, it's just it's interesting that those things can happen because I feel like that's exactly the kind of Rudy stuff right there. You know, that mm-hmm. was still early DIY internet days. It was something that by all means, if you look at the production of it was just terrible recording, oh, yeah. uh, you know, black and white in woods of some dudes saying some ridiculous crap that he's making up off the dome. And he, he's breaking character and laughing throughout like half the video too. It's, it's like and me yeah, doing the midweek strikes. fantasy with no edits. <laughs> I mean, the midweek fantasy is another person. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's, yes, it, it's fun. True. And also that, that ties back into the whole Dolomite thing of like, it's just a character. Uh, right. And while we're on that, uh, I, I mean, we, if we want to finish up that, that's fine. But that does bring me to an important thing that I think this movie kind of touches on. Uh, that I think still gets m- criticized way too often, mm. uh, but we can we can get there naturally, or we can go ahead and pivot in. 
Uh, I'm cool. What you got? Um, so this movie pretty early on touches on something that I feel like should be the most true statement in the world, but for some reason people just constantly try and be like, no, you can't do that. Uh, whenever he's going in and he's recorded the album and mm-hmm. he takes it to the laugh records or whatever, and he's playing it for them and he's telling the guy, he's like, Oh, you know, uh, the, the guy's listening to it. He's like, you can tell, you can call someone a cocksucker, but you can't say they suck cock. And I, his exact quoted response, I can't quite remember what he's like, but he's like, if I want to say that a girl's pussy was so fire or, you know, or so tight that it caught a dick on fire or whatever it was, he's like, I'm, I'm going to say it. And it kind of touches on something where it's like, at the point in time, they even started early in the movie with the whole Red Fox thing and saying, well, he's being, uh, you know, he's just doing a bunch of cursing and stuff. It goes to the thing of like, regardless of how the times move and what changes and all that, I think that comedy that's legitimately coming from a point of just trying to make people laugh is fine. I, and I think that there's that basic idea that, you know, a lot of people be like, well, if it's offensive to somebody, it's not good because it's mean spirited towards him. No, no, it's not. If your intention was not to do that, nothing should be held sacred in comedy. And I think one of my favorite things about comedy is its ability to take uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable topics and spin them in a way that makes you actually laugh at them instead of becoming like downtrodden and heavy hearted by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's like some of the best comedians have that ability to spin something that may be vulgar or maybe crazy, or maybe that you shouldn't say, but they find a way to say it in a way that still makes you chuckle and go, damn, they got me. Right. You know, Well, <clears throat> I've always believed that like a lot of the funniest comedy, like should viscerally offend me. Yeah, right. Like, absolutely. That, because that's, that's funny. And like, if it's one of those things where like, if you're not willing to be, uncomfortable it you know you don't get to grow from that i guess is the way i would say it Mm -hmm. well and kind of where i'm going with that is like the idea that right now that people should never have to be made to feel uncomfortable and i think that's a ridiculous thing because i think what comedy does and forcing you to look at something that does normally make you uncomfortable and view it in a different light is it kind of helps you deal with the fact that in life whether it's right or wrong or whatever it is, whether it's something that really doesn't matter, but it just makes you uncomfortable. You, If you are not willing to be uncomfortable, you cannot adequately live in society. I mean, that's because right. of cultural differences and everything that comes along with living in different areas and believing different things and having different religious beliefs is that undoubtedly, literally every sentence that can come out of someone's mouth can be found to be offensive. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're letting things that you take to offense make you uncomfortable, and you think that that means they shouldn't exist, I just I don't know how you should go on. Like, how can you really go on living? Because as time changes, as time changes, even if you find a way to make it to where people just are unwilling to talk about something because you've made it so taboo to talk about, all that's going to happen is you're going to find something new to be offended by, and you're going to have a new goal to be offended, and you're going to move the goalpost, and that's fine. It's just I don't feel like those things should be should be te- should be tied into comedy. Because clearly the intent there is not to say something messed up to say something messed up. It's to say something messed up in a way that is aiming at finding a way to make people laugh about it. Right. Sure. I, I think a distinction that's worth acknowledging, and I don't know that I have like a like a one size fits all answer for, is mm-hmm. like the difference between someone making a joke like knowingly, where it's like a laughing with you kind of thing, versus mm-hmm. what can often and is difficult to you know it, it's hard to like set any particular like 
where is the distinction, I guess. Uh, sometimes it feels case by case. Sometimes it feels very obvious. The distinction between like a knowing, like, like a, we're making fun of you. Yeah. But we're like, we're laughing with you. It's not like a disparaging kind of thing and not in like a, not that you can't make jokes at someone's expense, but I think there are ways to do that, uh, that are very real and address maybe unaddressed inequities versus, you know, you know, you calling someone a shithead, but you still like loving him or whatever. Like there are ways like mm-hmm. the difference between roasting your friends and just straight up like talking shit about somebody under the guise of it being a joke, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because that, that's a really, that's a really interesting thing because you know, when people talk about that, I'm like, you know, I've, I've heard people say worse things to each other mm-hmm. in an effort to just essentially roast battle each other. I like, it's all well, it is. I think the, the honestly, I think the only problem I would, say with what you're saying because I feel like inherently I want to agree with you but I think the problem is that we're especially we're seeing now in society is where I could make a joke that you know a lot 90% of people feel oh that's funny mm-hmm. and you know it is in your realm but like there's the one person who's like no that's not funny you know just just you know, just for example, because we all do this kind of stuff, right? Like, there was that. The, I, put, I think I put it at the end of the episode where I, I made that joke about, well, I identify as a whale because I fucked up with the midweek manatee. Mm. And, like, I think that's funny. And I wasn't doing it as, like, a, a fuck trans people thing, right? Obviously, I would never say that. Mm-hmm. Or, or I don't even feel that way. But there's one person out there who hears that joke and thinks I'm a transphobe, you know? Yeah, and I no, think exactly. that's the problem right now. And I think that's the same thing that he dealt with, with the, the, the cocksucking thing <laughs> because exactly, it, exactly. And it's not even know. about the severity because of course the, the times change. And the, the crazy part is, is that in that time period saying something as simple as a guy was sucking a cock or something, or someone was sucking someone's cock was considered just as offensive as the thing. Like when people get mad that someone says, retard or whatever it is that they say that people go wait a minute you can't say that it's like eh. but i i'll go ahead and say, i mean i'm a big fan of the idea of intent and yeah. i think the intent behind what you're doing should be very telling as to how people should respond i think if you're if, if your intention is to say something and i always use this as a go-to example i can call you any word i can call you a cotton-headed ninny muffin or whatever and if i say it with enough hate and vigor and and i know that my intent is to belittle and and demean you right then it has the same it it should have the same weight as anything else i could say at you now clearly we don't live in that in that perfect of a world that clearly doesn't mean that every word is going to hold the same weight but i do think it means that intent should matter a hell of a lot more than i think people really give it credit to yeah and if the intent behind comedy is to try and find a way to make someone laugh even if if even if in the long run you falter or fuck up or don't do it well maybe you do it a little poorly and trip over it Mm -hmm. If the intent going into it was still clearly to just to try and bring you know try and make someone laugh by you know being clever with something and finding a way to joke about it, I don't really see it as the same thing because there's been plenty of times. Like, you're a perfect example of oh, I identify as a well. All you're essentially trying to do is find a way to pivot out of a really weird situation you put yourself in in yeah. a way that's moderately humor. It's not that we're trying to poke fun at trans people or whales if you want to throw them <laughs> into the thing, uh, but it's. Still just <clears throat> clearly you didn't mean it to be that so i don't know why it should be taken that way i guess that's what right. i mean it, uh, it's crazy yeah. to me as an individual that people's intent is so seldom taken into account 
I also, you know, this is going to sound very Trumpian of me, right? But I also feel like there's an argument of, like, the media fucks all this stuff up for everybody. Because especially you look at it with, like, video games, right? And you'll see, you know, angry internet nerd is mad at video game, is mad at, what was I think Celeste, because they put a trans flag in a fucking four <laughs> pixels on the bottom of the screen, yeah. you know, and there's one guy who got six retweets complaining about it, <clears throat> and then you know IGN runs an article, and I'm like, so that you guys amplified this idiot, mm-hmm. and I think that's a significant thing. Like, I don't think, you know, I don't. I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing now are not people at large, right? No, like, I definitely agree there. It's yeah. it's. If I could address that uh, in a way that I, I guess my intent would be to refocus it slightly, because I I totally agree that like there are countless instances where small, like someone with absolutely no power to oppress anybody says something toxic, and that's like uh, that's it's the internet that kind of you you lift any stone on the internet and you're going to find someone just saying weirdly toxic shit. It's like I don't understand what your problem is, but you'd have no power to do anything to anybody. So I'm just going to not even pay attention to you. Um, obviously, yeah, blowing that stuff being picked, that doesn't need to be picked up as like a story anywhere that, that feels like an irresponsible use of that spotlight when you could just as easily highlight something positive and like actually do meaningful good, like showing, Hey, look at this rad shit going on over here. Like, I think yeah. that's a better use of that spotlight. Well, and that, um, not to interrupt you. Cause I know you're about to make your point, but I just, because it's on your, what you're saying is, there was no article calling out, like saying, "Hey, Celeste is showing support for the trans community." I never saw that article. The article that I saw was "fuck this bigot," you know, and that—that's I think kind of goes with your point. But it just is stupid, you know. Sure, and I don't remember the gist of it, but I do remember the conversation being around at least like where I saw the conversation on that particular subject, it was all positive being like, Oh yeah. Celeste is being positive in this way. Like I didn't see anyone talking about the negative aspects of it. So I'm also curious if that's what often tends to be the case as a difference between what press or media and what the actual people around the issue are talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's, it's the, it's the argument that I've been making recently. where like, I don't, I don't fucking like polygon, you know, I don't like a lot of their articles. I think they're, I think they write articles specifically to get clicks from shitty people, and a lot, a lot of times they do write good stuff. All, all these sites do, you know. But, and I said this in, in one of the Facebook groups where they were whining about a Polygon article, and I'm like, well, you fucking shared it here, so every single person just clicked on that article and read the article that you don't like, you mm. know. And that's that's a, that's a completely opposite side of the spectrum thing. But you know, if if you don't like this stuff, why are you giving it the energy? I think that last sentence in particular is very useful and important for everyone to keep in mind of like, mm-hmm. totally like the, the, and there's, there are ways to bring awareness, but not every method of talking about something is bringing awareness in a way that's necessarily productive. Um, but if I could real quick address <laughs> yeah, the no, thing I, sure. I, I was intending to address, I, I think, yeah, generally it's probably not like productive to try to persecute people for making jokes. I think, uh, what Brett was saying, ideally, that should be able to be the case, as long as that comes with, ideally, people being just as willing to hear people out who are like, like, like instead of fixating on the 
the negative Twitter threads about it, like actually taking the time to listen to people who are saying like, Hey, from a genuine place, this is how this stuff affects me. This is how like, even if it's a throwaway joke, how I've heard it fucking 60 times this month. And it kind of just wears on you after a while. And it's not that the joke itself is harmful, but it's that the joke kind of points to an underlying feeling of people like me aren't respected or aren't as valued in society as you know, everyone else. I think that's the big thing that's, again, I I don't know what the end game is for how you respond to that and also let comedy do its thing. But I think that's a valid thing to, I'm almost done. Uh, I I, I think that's a thing that I, I would like more people to keep in mind at least is like, by all means, tell whatever jokes you want, like be as raunchy as you want, but also be willing to hear people out who are like, Hey, I'm not trying to like, take this away from you. I'm just trying to say like, Hey, I'm getting shit on all the time. And it would be really cool if some of the jokes about me weren't the same, you know, Apache attack helicopters or, you know, 41% or whatever shit. Like if it could actually be like from a place of trying to understand the human aspect and joking about the human aspect, as opposed to jokes that I think are more on the distant dehumanizing uh, flavor of it. But anyway, yeah, I mean, um, I guess the only thing I would say to that is it's kind of the same thing we were saying. Is like, it's not necessarily that I disagree, and everyone should be listening to each other. Yeah, but you telling me it's the same. You, you just telling me that the jo- that the joke that you don't like my joke, right? It's the same thing. And I'm not, you know, there. None of those jokes are funny. The Apache helicopter thing has never been funny. Yeah, I've, I've, it's just it's never has been. Um, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's the the right wing dudes who are like, oh, you're you know, if you can identify as a girl, I can be an Apache helicopter. Blah. It was it, it was basically the exact same joke that I made, except I didn't mean it against a trans person. Whereas that joke is like actively bigoted in a lot of ways. So, mm-hmm. um, a, a key difference there is you made that joke in context of this bizarre situation where you're portraying an aquatic mammal. Not like whereas a lot of dudes who bring up the Apache helicopter thing are going out of their way to say it as a dismissal of a group of people, and I think that's there's a lot of middle ground between that where it's hard to necessarily see where it falls. But I think as long as again to Brett's thing of intent, if you are doing your due diligence to at least hear people out and not just make jokes that are dismissive, I think that's a key thing that makes the difference into how people who that joke does apply to will receive it yeah I don't hopefully know. at least right yeah you would imagine <laughs> but yeah I, I just i thought it was an interesting thing for the movie to touch um, on because clearly comedy at least in the modern day and i think if you look um part of the reason that i even really thought about it is because of course i do think comedy comes under a fire a lot and i actually do mean under fire from specifically the media and how the media can try and get this small group of people to have a visceral reaction in regards to it uh which is annoying it kind of plays back to what chris was talking mm. about um it ends up making a small group of people seem like the majority because they're so damn vocal and it just becomes annoying. Um, but the reason it ended up crossing my mind is because this is Eddie Murphy, who is good friends with Dave Chappelle, and Dave Chappelle has constantly come under fire for the jokes he's chosen to do in his last few specials, which I all, I found every one of the jokes to be hilarious and well-crafted uh, because they were crafted with the intent of getting somewhere by the end. And it's just that kind of stuff I I love personally for me, 
I like seeing somebody take a situation, definitely when it's something that involves them. I think that part of the reason the Chappelle stuff ended up going the way it was is that people kept talking about it. So mm-hmm. what's the best way to kind of keep going with it? Continue to make jokes about it so that you can find a way to spin the fact that you're making jokes and that people are mad at you for making jokes into a new joke. And I think that that stuff is funny. Uh, I don't know if either of you ever mm-hmm. listened to Tom Segura, but his new special had a joke that was very much like that, where in one of his other specials, he said people from Louisiana are stupid or something like that, and that, that he hated Louisiana in some passive throwaway way. And he's like, and I'm sorry if I, you know, now that I've had some time to reflect and blah, blah, blah. He's like, now what he goes, he goes, I didn't realize at the time that Arkansas was a place. I'd never been there. And it's a fun joke. I live in Arkansas. <laughs> Clearly, I wasn't mad about it. <laughs> so stuff like that is just, I, I liked the movie touched on that because this movie is, if you really think about it, this is stuff that if you were saying back in the 70s, my grandparents and my parents would probably think that this is really raunchy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, it's like well, that would have been offensive humor in the time period. Right, and I think that's you know not to go back to the long-winded conversation we were having, but it kind of it kind of goes <laughs> where like time is also a very important factor to these things, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember a time in my life where there were PSAs on television telling me to stop saying you know retard, you know. <laughs> I've I, never like, seen that, that. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> oh yeah, it was a fucking. I remember specifically because it was fucking Hillary Duff. And there was an entire <laughs> PSA, and the whole the whole po- only point I'm trying to make is that at this point in 2020, you shouldn't be using that word in a negative context. But back back when I was fucking in middle school and elementary school, that shit we said that shit all the time. You know, if I got homework, I called it gay. You know, that's not Dude, absolutely. And and, and <laughs> you know now I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't do that or at least not I still I I'll be honest with everybody I still do that stuff but I actively avoid it but because it's not something i should be in my vernacular but i'm not going to pretend i'm a perfect person but the point all the point i'm trying to make is that there's a time and a place where certain stuff was fine and then we've grown past that you know at this point now i don't think there's any situation where you should be saying the n-word because that's just where we've gotten to and not that you ever should have before but there was definitely less of like oh, this is so bad, you know? And I mean, I I think, like, there are tons of friend groups where, like, again, going back to, like, the roasting thing, if you know somebody, then, like, that that sometimes gives you the tools to most directly eviscerate them through humor. Um, And I I guess that's the only thing, is, like, uh, when when you're roasting your friends, you're roasting them, like, you're still treating them as a person. And, And I think that's a thing that, is important in all of this that I hope would happen as people continue to navigate this is like making the jokes in a way that aren't like, uh, <laughs> encouraging the viewing of people as other, I guess. I, I don't know if I'm articulating this well, I, I guess I, an example that came to mind is like the difference between like a Helen Lovejoy type character in the eighties, like all of the, the Nancy Reagan esque, like oh rock music is bad and we gotta shut it down like i i think that's a very different type of yeah. like pearl clutching than uh you know a couple people just being like yo can can we at least write better jokes if nothing else um but obviously you know twitter and etc it's difficult to have like a just we are two people who view this differently and we're gonna talk it out 
Like it's well, it's hard to do that. One of the things that you but. said that I think is like this movie actually touches on as well, and it touches on it from a perspective that I think makes sense within the movie, and it made me laugh because I know what the joke is, and even though it doesn't necessarily apply to me, I understand why it gets there. It, it's kind of the idea of like people act like stereotypes can't be funny. I absolutely think stereotypes can be funny, and I think that the absolutely. reason they exist is because clearly enough people have done it, and enough people have experienced people of this group doing something mm-hmm. in this way to where you find it funny because you have the referential spot to go, huh, yeah, I've totally seen that. Uh, and, and what that comes down to is like, one of the things you said is a way to po- is a way to make jokes without making people feel like others. I think personally, this movie highlights mm. the fact that we are all different and there are things that different groups do by nature of being around each other. So sometimes it's a nurture thing. Sometimes it's a nature thing. Sometimes it's a cultural thing. And those differences mm-hmm. are fine. And I think it should be fine to poke fun at them and kind of reference them and make light of them. If not, even if nothing else, just as an interesting pseudo educational stance on seeing how other people live you know live and react to things one of the things this movie did that made me really laugh is when they're in the theater watching the the front page or whatever and they're the only black people in there and they've read in the paper that this is supposed to be funny and it's the most drab for lack of a better (laughs) term and what the movie honestly was trying to put out there it's the most drab boring white people humor yes absolutely and that shit made me laugh Mm -hmm. so hard because that is not my type of humor but i know people People who like that kind of shit and it's funny because i've seen it and it, it's kind of like it goes back to again Chappelle's show and talking about the, the tie there one of the funniest Chappelle show skits to me is the episode where he has john mayer on and they're going through and he's like white people can dance you just got to give them the right music and they have john mayer start playing guitar after they did like a beatbox and the white people didn't do anything and then john <laughs> mayer starts playing like super soulful mm-hmm. guitar and they're like throwing their bras off and shit. it's funny because <laughs> of the fact that you know people who exhibit these these things and i am part of the white people group and i'm not at all offended by it because i know why and i know people there's plenty of jokes in the spell show and in this movie that are aimed at stereotypes of the black community and that's fine because we do have stereotypes that a good percentage of our people follow and it's okay to make jokes at that we should we shouldn't feel bad for feeling like other because we are all other be it mm. straight trans gay black white whatever it is that you were however you are different we are all different and i think it the best thing i can think to get kind of remove barriers is the ability to kind of just all poke fun at each other in a way like josh kind of has been saying that can come off as friendly and i think a lot of that just comes in that you have to assume that people are not trying to do something to hurt you and i think because of media and because of people who are actually 100 percent very hateful people it gets it becomes hard and you become jaded to it and you think that anybody saying sure. anything is trying to do it to come at you with a personal attack and if you can just come from a place where you don't think everyone is out to get you, I think it's a lot easier to understand people and how we are different and how to best work around each other and our differences, not only on a level of groups, but as a level of individuals. That's why you're talking about these jokes that people make with, uh, you know, when, when people are going around and kind of roasting their group of friends, it's those hyper specific jokes that hit the hardest because mm-hmm. it's you know exactly what it is about that person in their life that makes that happen and and that is funny you can do mm-hmm. things that are very specific to someone and highlight their differences while still doing it in a way that can be seen as not trying to come at you in a personal yeah. manner well it's so the same I, thing of, yeah sorry go ahead no, you no it's just the same thing of where like i can i can go to 
anyone and I can make a fat joke about myself, but the second you make a fat joke about me, I'll fucking come after you. You know, it's just it's the same it's the same kind of thing. Like you guys on this joke on this show, you could you could make the jokes if you want to, but like if some if some random customer at my job started ma- calling me that, I would fucking flip out on them. You know, it's the different thing where you know, you have to be able to at least get it, you know. Yeah, well, one of the things I think this movie highlighted for me, and it's something I already thought, it's something that makes a lot of sense once you start thinking about it, is like comedy in the right context. Trying to poke a joke, and I see it happen all the time, and I don't think everybody means it bad, but it's like when you see someone try and crack a joke. One of the go-to ones that I see people do that that the people tend not to find funny is when people make some joke about like, you must be glad that I'm your last customer today, or you probably get that all the time when people are at you know retail. Of course, it's just well, you trying to make yeah. some dumb joke. You don't mean it in a bad way, but you don't realize that this person's ho- heard this joke probably 20 times today. <laughs> They're tired. They're ready to go home. They're not in the mood for it. And you end up just being in this position where it's like no one was trying to hurt someone, but it still came off in a negative light because of the situation surrounding it. And that's fine. But it's it's different when you're in the right context. I think... When I really speak about comedy, I do mean in the broader sense. I do mean if I say something to you guys personally, we're all just hanging out and I'm just trying to make you guys laugh, it should still be given the same thing. But I think that's because we know each other and we have a comfort with each other that we know that. And I think that the only Mm -hmm. time it works on a stranger to stranger basis is when it's in the context of doing stand up. When you're in the actual spot where it's like the whole goal of being in stand up is to tell jokes. The whole goal is to try and find ways to make a, the largest group of people laugh as possible. Absolutely. And once you remove it from that and try and go and, stranger to stranger and make jokes it gets a lot harder and even then one of the shows that i've been to one of the comedy stand-up shows i had a guy was poking fun at religion and it was funny but Mm -hmm. of course because i live in the bible belt there were people that could not separate themselves from that and just became belligerent and crazy and it's just Mm. clearly that's not what he was trying to do but it's hard to separate that sure and uh i'll do my best to pivot it Pivot, pivot us off of this uh, this little uh, diatribe here. Although it's, I think it's been great. Um, we can get back to the movie. Um, I guess real quick, I, I did want to address. Um, <laughs> honestly, it left my fucking mind as soon as I said <laughs> I that. I hate when that happens. Um, <laughs> sometimes that happens. Uh, oh, um, all I was gonna say, I, I think for like any group of people, right, like if you feel like the only time someone's talking about you Mm. is when it's a joke. And if that joke Mm. happens to be making fun of you, I think that's when it can start to feel harder to be like, well, of course it's just a joke, but you kind of ignore me when I need shit and you're only referencing me. If it's a punchline, I think that's a thing that can be Mm. worth acknowledging. And again, that's not the fault of the comedy itself. That's more speaking Mm. to the bigger situation, but I think that's what can lead to like maybe having the insight to like, is this, joke touching on a sore spot right now and if it is can i make it more eloquently uh in a way that makes like a a bigger point but i, don't know. Um, I think yeah i think i'm hispanic so i guess i can kind of put the best spin on it with the two white boys i got with me <laughs> but it's kind of the difference between carlos mencia's comedy and george lopez's comedy Whereas Carlos Mencia is just fucking mm. insulting because he's a terrible comic. But, like, <laughs> George Lopez is fucking hilarious because everything he says, it's like, it's accurate. 
you know and like it's like it's all mm-hmm. stereotypes but then you look at those stereotypes you're like yeah yeah that's true <laughs> and you know it's it's one of those things where and you know not to go on another diatribe but it's a lot of like you know white people defending other races where like George Lopez is getting cancelled for his Hispanic jokes where like every Hispanic I know is like yeah this shit's fucking hilarious and I'm not <laughs> sitting here saying that there's no upset Hispanics I'm sure there are but it's a lot of like you don't necessarily need to get offended for other people because I mean George Lopez's jokes oh, are perfect and now he's gonna stop making them like nah bro make make the jokes about the fucking flip flops because you know what I got my ass kicked with some flip flops you know what <laughs> my parents for every meal make rice and chicken it's the same shit like <laughs> it's true <laughs> and the difference there is making fun of your own people versus right. having someone do it for you and I think that's a big thing is like mm. if there were more like trans and non-binary and more like uh, gender diverse com- like comics that were part of that conversation right. then I think people would feel way less it's one of those things where, like, about it. John Mulaney could make all of George Lopez's jokes but John <laughs> Mulaney would have to do it 500 times better than George Lopez does that's the problem and not John Mulaney sure. is a significantly better comedian no offense to George Lopez but actually full oh, of I don't know about that John Mulaney is I love John Mulaney eh. but but George Lopez is like an yeah, icon. Yeah, but George point. Lopez like, was an icon when it was, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into a comedy debate. Um, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what we've been doing this well, entire uh, unless time? Unless you guys have any. <laughs> like an actual comedy. <laughs> unless you guys have any burning additions you want to make, like, by all means, speak your piece if uh, Chris or Brett, you want to add anything. Otherwise, I'm totally down to transition into yeah, kind no, of closing thoughts on the movie and get us out of here. Um, so to offer you up cool. a, a pivotable thing, uh, I've also, I've often talked yes. about how I really love timepieces uh, and everything that they do to mm-hmm. kind of make themselves feel like they're of their time. Um, sometimes that's through things yeah. that are on the set. Sometimes it's through things that they're doing in the story that when you think on now, it's like, oh, that's kind of impossible to do these days. Um, so one thing is my stepdad is in his mid 60s uh actually coming into his late 60s and there the the chair that was at dolomite's desk whenever he's whenever he's standing up and practicing for the movie line when he's in the hotel uh, i had that exact chair and it was my computer chair for five years (laughs) during my teen years because we couldn't afford anything else so my stepdad had that chair away in storage i pulled it out i mean exact color exact everything so that was kind of interesting but interesting so that was something cool to kind of ground it in time period but the other thing uh that caught me like almost immediately was whenever he recorded his own record his uh, his, uh, own stand-up special or whatever you want to call it his own comedy album uh and then decided he was going to press it himself i was like man that's so crazy that in this time period you could record your thing and then press it yourself because there were plenty of machines to make masters that you could continue to press off of and because yeah the vinyl went away for a a good chunk of time and people thought that it was going to be a thing in the past. People didn't keep up with them and sold them and used different parts of them. There's only, and it may be different now because I know that, um, Jack White was actively working to create another one. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. I think for a long time we've been down to all vinyl records are pressed from one press. There is one 
press that you have to make your masters for and then go through and put your thing in so it can press it. Um, and that's insanity because it's really, it takes considerably more effort to put your work on vinyl now because of that. <laughs> and it's way more expensive because of that. Yeah. Because there's back line that you have to deal with. So it's, it's very interesting to see that in this movie and him just be selling it out of his trunk. I was kind of like, man, that's the difference that, you know, just like we're so used to our modern technology now and what we can do with it. It's like, that's what you used to be able to do. But vinyl is making a comeback. So it's interesting to see how these are kind of just so different between the two time periods. Absolutely. Like going viral in a completely mm-hmm. analog process is like, honestly, it's kind of cool as fuck. Like there's something that was really rad to see about like him going through each of those steps. Like we didn't see like the vinyl pressing or anything, but it was such a hands-on kind of like out of mm-hmm. the back of your trunk sort of thing um, in a way that people kind of do. But since physical medium isn't like necessary now, it feels less exciting. But I know that that's a weird thing. I'm, I'm often saddened as crazy as it is because I've bought so many um, <laughs> when I would just be at my truck, didn't have a job where I made shit for money, but I'd be filling it up for gas and a guy would come up and be like, Hey man, you want to buy my mixtape for however much money? And almost every time, as long as I legitimately had the money on me, I just say, yeah, I didn't even listen to half mm-hmm. of them because I was like, you know, it depends on what it is. I'm like, man. ah, it's not really a genre I love, <laughs> but Hey, I'm just trying to support a man living his dream, you know, it's like, or at least trying whatever it be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if someone's going out of their way to like, usually door to door sales, I don't give a shit about, but if it's like someone creative, like it's, it's at least not like some schemey sales shit. It's like, Hey, they made this like what? Five, 10 bucks for a CD. They spent however many hours yeah. on. That's totally fair. Like I'm happy to support it. Even if they're yeah. taking straight that. trash. I, I kind of miss that people coming up to you, putting it all on the line and being like, Hey man, I'm up and coming, trying to get something started. Would you be willing to buy my mixtape? I just, I don't know what it is. I, I guess I'm a sucker. I just, you know, in terms of not, not in a bad way, but just, I like seeing that in people. So I like supporting that in people. And I'm really bummed that I like now the only people that come up to me whenever I'm pumping gas are people who either genuinely need help getting food or something or the people that you see running the same game Mm -hmm. every day. Um, And that's a little, that's way more depressing, Mm. you know? Uh, So it's just, it's one of those things. The most recent example of that is a guy who no joke, he wasn't even at the gas station. I was pulling out of a bank that I was uh, one of our customers uh, and I was just sitting there and he kind of like signaled for me to roll down my window. So I did. And he goes, listen, man, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I just got out of jail. I'm hungry. I don't have any money. All I got is this backpack. Uh, he's like, would you be willing to take me down to the Sonic down here and get me a burger? And I was like, uh, honestly, man, I was like, I've got to go cause I'm on the clock. But uh, I was like, I'll go ahead and give you the money. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. It's just, I miss that aspect of seeing people just trying to do exactly what was in this movie of like pedal to the metal, put it all yeah. on the line, go out there and give, you know, tell, sell people yourself. Kind of like we see Dolomite doing when he's having to go through and uh, market for the movie, you know, promote for the movie. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of along the same lines. I was so impressed by the set design throughout this movie. The, the scene that did this the most for me. And I think, kind of by design when they turn on the power for the hotel for the first time uh-huh. uh, or I guess for the theater. Um, and it's just like 
all of the lights coming on like separately. And even if some of the flickering was a little bit like, okay, not every light has to flicker the same way, but we get it. But like, still like seeing all these different, like badass light fixtures that looked authentically like they were, you know, how, however many decades old, not like you were turning them on now and they just turned to dust, but like, you know, they've got like dust on them, but it's like, Hey, the cool neon lights on the front and like all these red fixtures, like, I don't know. That whole scene just won me over. Like the magic of an old building coming to life again. Just like I don't know. I, I always take that kind it of was vibe. immediately because I, I thought that scene was really awesome too. And it wasn't immediately juxtaposed, but it was pretty close. How right after that you see Wesley Snipes' character come in and fall through the floor because I thought that's exactly. I live in a in a ninety four <laughs> year old house. I thought that's exactly what it is. Like you've got some really cool old stuff that's really <laughs> interesting to see come back to life, and then you also have the times where it's like, oh, but this is also really in bad shape and needs to be replaced <laughs> i actually had that exact thing i had dry rot whenever i was redoing the floor in my kitchen and i had to go under and scab it and mm. cut and replace some parts so it's just one of those things old old stuff coming back to life is amazing but it's also funny how fickle it can be <laughs> definitely yes uh, sir chris any scenes that stand out to you in this movie as we honestly close the biggest out? one was him partying with the moviegoers that was the one that really got that i really liked um yeah and i did enjoy him like in the like in the record store because it just showed his like drive to get out of there i don't know i think the whole movie was just the whole movie itself just worked because the whole movie just ended up being just super inspiring especially for someone like me who wants to break into an industry that is borderline dead uh <laughs> um you know, it helps to yeah. have see someone like drag themselves up from working in a fucking nightmare escape you know mm. yeah definitely uh brett what about you any well, other scenes course, you want to shout out i already covered i did, i think across the board i liked a lot of the uh the kind of montage style thing where he's moving from city to city early on and i even liked the little interstitials mm. where you see him pulling out a physical map and circling the actual location i love little things like that and i just love the detail too because like that's something that wouldn't really be in a story told now because no one uses physical maps, but that was just a cool little, like, oh, yeah, drawing yeah. a line literally to the next city and circling it and checking it off that way. <laughs> but honestly, just the, the comedy of this movie was so ridiculous. Uh, one of my favorite things, and it just made me, like, belly laugh because of how crazy it was, was whenever they were at the club where he meets, excuse me, where he meets Queen Bee or Lady, what's what was her name again? Lady Lady Ray, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, when he meets her, uh, whenever the guy who's like the opening MC is out there doing his thing, and he's putting the mic up to the girl's ass, who's like essentially twerking, and then the first line <laughs> that Dolomite says, or you know, Rudy says, whenever he comes out as kind of doing Dolomite, <laughs> is immediately like, "I know one thing: this microphone smells like ass." I fucking died. <laughs> That's the kind of comedy that I like. Yeah, that was very funny. Uh, yeah. But overall, the, the movie is really well done. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was surprised at the length um, and just the process of kind of making uh, of making the a movie of someone making a movie. That's always a really interesting thing to look at. Uh, but a, a good heartwarming scene, not something that's just like visually super pleasing or anything, but it just really felt 
into the movie and what I feel like, you know, Rudy's character was, was when everyone kind of rallied around him at the end of shooting, despite, you know, Wesley's character kind of just left uh, and did his thing. But I liked how everyone else kind of rallied around. Oh, it was yeah. like, you know, hey, it's not over until you say that's a wrap. Uh, and then he says it's the first time and they're like, you know, give us a Dolomite rap. It was just a heartwarming scene. Yeah. No, I really love that. That one gave me like an appreciation for, uh, it, it kind of reminded me why, like as much as working on movie sets fucking sucks, it's also like mm-hmm. pure magic. Like I, I've only done it on like the lower end of things. So I haven't gotten to experience it from any angle other than like a PA or like an audio person. But like, there's something really cool about you're building a world, like you're building a reality. It's kind of like if you ever go to like a Renaissance fair or some kind of thing where like everyone is like kind of into it. Dude, Renaissance um, fairs are awesome. It's really cool. For the it's exact good. reason. Oh, yeah. Like there's something just fucking cool about like you're creating this alternate world together, and like you're willing it into existence makes it feel like you're somewhere special instead of just wherever you are, even mm-hmm. if where you are is kind of cool. But yeah, so that, that was cool just seeing like, yeah, all right, we're putting like the best end cap possible on like, all right, we're putting this down for a little bit, but we're doing so in like well, a celebratory I liked way. how it kind of played into the the part before where you see, uh, you know, you see Rudy's character kind of being put on display there where they're kind of like, um, when he's dealing with Wesley's character kind of being a bit of a asshole about everything. And then he kind of just stops and is like, mm. listen, I'm the one paying for everything and I don't have an ego about it. And that remains true the rest of the time. It's like, yeah, his ego is not in the sense that it's detracting from everybody being able to work together. You know, he follows through with what he says, like, I'm doing whatever it takes. If you need a box to be moved, I'll move the box. If we need this to happen, I'll do that because I'm about having us all come together as a team. And I guess that kind of just felt like the penultimate, like, oh, this is all of that coming together. For, you know, when everything's said and done and you see this crew who feels that they've been part. It's one of those things where it's just like, it's, it screams like when you have really actually great teamwork moments with someone and you just have that elated feeling that's almost impossible to match when you just feel like you've given everything you had for something, but you also feel like everyone around you yeah. has done the exact same. Yeah, that's a great Absolutely. Feeling. But uh, yeah, unless any of you guys have anything else to add, uh, I would love to go around and get each of you guys' ratings on this movie. Uh, cool. Chris, we'll start with you. What's your rating for uh, I Dolomite give it a is my four name? And a half. Four and a half stars, baby. Nick. Oh. I gave it the same hey, rating. Hey, I gave it the exact same rating myself. Brett, what about you? Oh, look at us. Hey. Sweet. I don't know. I don't know if we do like a, a triple sevens kind of thing if we all rate it the same, but it's not fives, but we can still <laughs> triple cherries. We can still just in our heads just be like, Are we yeah, gonna get right, a visit cool. from the midweek manatee this week or <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know what I'm what to do for the midweek. Is, is he busy anymore. chasing his dreams? I think so. I think he's doing some underwater recordings of uh, his comedy album. Ah, uh, yeah. Man of Night. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Put it in my blowhole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe none of us talked about the name, and I assume that this is probably a real album name, but to eat out more often. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what it was, but there was a thing on Twitter like a few weeks back that was like an initiative to like uh, for eating out at restaurants to help keep them in business. While you know, uh, <laughs> it, it was weird, but the the name for it was I so ridiculous because it was just so hard for it to not sound sexual. 
Yeah. Oh man, I saw that too. Um, yeah. Well, shit. If uh, if that's everyone's ratings, I feel like that concludes what we have to say about Dolomite is my name. Uh, if somehow you got to the end of this episode and haven't seen the movie, uh, what is wrong with you? Why? Um, Why? If. <laughs> In any scenario, if you're hearing me say these words, I hope you check out this movie and the original one, which I've I've got like 60% of the way through. It's fucking hilarious. It's lo-fi as fuck. It feels like uh, um, it, it reminds me of like movies that would get uploaded to like mm. early YouTube where it was just like unapologetically like super DIY filmmaking and a lot of it is not good, but that's what makes it really endearing. Um, but yeah, shit. Uh, real quick. I can throw out our movie for next week, which Blake picked. He is not here, but he told us in advance. Um, he wants us to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. I knew it was coming. Yeah, I'm not even like remotely surprised. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I had a feeling after I saw him share the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, Nightmare Before Christmas. What am I doing? Nightmare on Elm Street poster on his Facebook. I was like, I have a feeling we're going to be watching that very soon. Yeah, he like I asked him and he told me and I just went okay. <laughs> like shocking. Yeah. Very expected. But uh yeah, apparently it is streamable on HBO Max, so if you have that you're in luck and if you don't uh uh-huh. do the free trial or steal someone's account. Absolutely. We're all about stealing someone's account here. Also, mm-hmm. shout out to this movie because <laughs> now that I pay for it because my mom bumps my Netflix uh <laughs> and for some reason can't seem to keep it down to just two TVs yeah. <laughs> so I had to hmm. bump mine up which means that now I have 4K streaming uh, and this movie supported Damn. not only 4K streaming so it looked very crisp and clear despite you know of course streaming is never perfect for 4K but it is what it is uh, but also it had the uh, Dolby yep. Vision so the color toning for this movie was excellent I mean excellent uh, yeah, I really think it's one of the best looking movies we've ever actually we've had on the show. Yeah, if you have HDR on your TV and you can stream it and you have the ability to pay for that, uh, man, I've watched a few things recently from Netflix that have been in that. Uh, all their new content is coming in that. Uh, speaking of which, Tom Segura's stand-up special Ball Hog is available in that. And it's amazing. When you see the Dolby Vision kick in, there's like a split second where it has to wait and make sure your TV has it. Um, and when it does, it's like, mm-hmm. oh my god! Like you think vi- you think well shot video looks real until you actually have the color grading that comes from an actual HDR thing, and you're just kind of like, holy shit! <laughs> so great looking movie. Agreed. I'm sorry, I slipped my dog down. Well, that's all I got. Uh, unless Chris has any uh, end cap to add, I feel like it's off to to Brett to take us away. Chris, you want to speak now or forever hold your peace? Uh, no, I think I'm good. I'm sorry. I just yeah, you're all spaced, good, man. I spaced for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were hitting the bong too hard. I hear that cough. <laughs> I have actually, you know what? I have been sober for three weeks, and it's super weird. And hey, look, I'm proud of you, dude. I, I've lost That's 10 awesome. pounds in three weeks, so it's been actually really nice. Oh, God. It's actually it's been as effective as you kind of mentioned that you thought it might be. That's awesome. Oh, 100%. It was the second yeah. I stopped. I stopped eating like shit. Oh, dude. Well, that's cool. I'm, I'm really proud of you. That's awesome. Damn. Oh, thanks. 
All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. This has been Midweek Matinee. Uh, Of course, you can find us every Wednesday. uh, And if you want to support us even further and get those episodes up to a week early, uh, head over to our Patreon and consider giving as little as a dollar per month to directly support the show. We appreciate it. Uh, But we also, of course, appreciate everyone who gives us their time. If you want to be part of our social media experience, you can head over there and see screenshots for movies that we're talking about. You can participate in games for guessing movies based off of emojis, if that sounds fun to you. We run polls and some other things over there. So follow us on Twitter at matinee underscore midweek or go over to Facebook and follow us at uh, midweek matinee. But until next week, going to give a special shout out to all of our patrons with special shout out to Josh Terrell, Matthew Green. My name is Dan, Luke Bartolomeo, Sean Santarud, Funk Turkey, Danny Villiobos, Corey Hickerson, Blake Popst, Kevin Bacon Bits, Joshua Lago, Shadowist, Stephen Salazar, The Stoner, Travis Below, Eduardo Palomino, Stefan Swanland, Constantly Kenny, Solitary Red, Chris Figs, Zachary Sawyer, Landis, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Brandon Edwards, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, El Chabib, Jason Clendenning, Tyler B., and for her last week this month, Miss Allie Valiant. Thank y'all so much. Hey! Hello, Looker, and congratulations. You have discovered the secret message. Midweek Matinee is produced and edited by Christopher Figueroa. Music is by Joshua Lago. Thank you for your support and for enjoying all these movies with us. And lastly, please send your iTunes reviews to Old Pink, Care of the Funny Farm.